If you were on a BC ferry, you could have potentially had your travel plans disrupted because BC ferries cancelled almost 20 sailings during the past week. And the majority of those cancellations, according to BC ferries, was because of a lack of crew members. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Eric McNeely, president of the BC Ferry and Marine Workers Union. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know it's frustrating for travellers. It must be frustrating for workers as well when there are these shortages. What are your thoughts on the number of cancellations we've seen just in the past few days? Yeah, well, we we sort of always say that um, spring break is the first test run in the the run-up to summer, and then uh, May long weekend is the real test to see uh, where the crew levels are. Um, looks like we're having a bit of trouble coming through uh, through spring break. So it's an opportunity, I think, for BC Ferries to really look at um, how the recruitment team is working. And uh, there's a real reliance, I think, on individuals within the system to keep the vessels running. And what we see uh, over the past week is, you know, uh, vessels running with smaller crew, which means that they're able to carry less uh, passengers. And that has a, a, an overall pressure impact on the system because uh, when there's high volumes of traffic, more people want to travel. So if there is any disruptions, whether that's through a a crew shortage or a mechanical issue, the ability to absorb that additional traffic uh, is reduced. And uh, we've been working with BC Ferries as well to try and solve some of those challenges uh, through recommendations on training and then, you know, recruitment and retention uh, efforts overall. Right. And and, I mean, I should mention the bulk of the sailings did go ahead Uh, for anybody that's had their sailing cancelled. They know how frustrating that is. But uh, we did see uh, the bulk of the sailings go. But uh, with these uh, 19 trips cancelled and and like you said, or like we mentioned, the bulk of those because of crewing issues. When you talk about what uh, recommendations the union has made or ideas that the union has put forward to BC Ferries, what types of things do you think could help in high more crew and and more staff retention so it's a multifaceted approach generally but um, so there's a few things as far as crew getting crew and, re- and retaining them uh, making it uh, the compensation package uh, competitive is a good start um, making sure there's a work-life balance flexibility there has always been that um, or at least in the last 20 years there's been a criticism of sort of a BC Ferries employment model, so the, the on-call style where people are, are unsure of their, uh, you know, earnings for the month, and that creates a bit of a, a perilous work environment. There are, we've discussed with BC various ways to make that more uh, palatable, including uh, some minimum guaranteed shifts for uh, new or returning uh, casuals, and uh, we think that that'll help uh, increase some folks. And then in positions with the higher certification levels, on the vessels themselves, uh, we've been advocating for for greater degrees of uh, competitive compensation there, with an ability to balance. So, there's different employment models within BC Ferries, whether it's someone who has a schedule or someone who who provides uh, a pool relief. Uh, looking at making those pool relief positions, who sort of fill in spots where we may have seen shortages over the past week, making it so those positions are are more attractive. Uh, that helps build in a sense of redundancy and, and therefore resiliency within the system. And, uh, you know, it would be sort of a, a bit of a miss if, I, if we just talked about just the crew itself. We're also looking at our reef pits facility where we have trades working. And, uh, you know, those, those folks are pretty much doing seven days a week to, uh, to keep these older vessels running. 
looking for additional supports there, uh, either through education training like apprenticeship programs, uh, as well as uh, compensation. Um, there is a difference in compensation for those uh, specific trades that we use within our uh, refit facility uh, compared to uh, other refit facilities or dry docks in the Vancouver and Victoria areas. Right. When you talk about the different positions, are, is there a certain part that, that you see more vacancies? Is it more, like you said, the kind of the certification trades or other positions that, that you're seeing difficulty in re- retaining or even recruiting staff? So there's, there's challenges recruiting across the board right now. Certainly the uh, trades, uh, so skilled trades are short, so you're thinking like welders, machinists, uh, you know, uh, heavy-duty mechanics. Uh, those are a challenge to recruit, especially in the lower mainland. And then for shifts uh, crew, there's a, a full breadth of challenges getting people there right now. Uh, of course, the most acute being in the licensed officers' positions, so the ship's officers. And that's a, a, a direct competition issue. There's uh, other marine carriers on the coast that provide different terms and conditions of employment. However, uh, BC Ferries, uh, with the, the new management team they've had in since last July, and uh, with the new CEO, uh, looking to really focus on people and, uh, you know, as a union, uh, our primary focus is people. So we're encouraged by that shift and uh, looking to see them make uh, meaningful, change, meaningful changes here in the near future so that uh, the ferry system can run reliably uh, post-spring break into May long and into the summer. Right, because if, if we don't see those changes, or do you think, is it possible that those changes will be made before we get into the full summer season when there are so many people that are going to be traveling on and depending on the ferries? Uh, we're certainly hopeful. Um, we had uh, The union had a meeting with uh, the company a couple weeks ago, expressed our concerns about the preparations for summer, and we're going to have a follow-up meeting with the, uh, the employer, and that'll be partially touching on recruitment and retention efforts uh, to date, uh, because uh, whenever the public is impacted by a, a sailing disruption or a delay or uh, a reduced license, uh, you know, reduced passenger carrying capacity, uh, that also affects our members. And in most cases, our members live in the communities that they're servicing and providing uh, ferries to. And you know, uh, that real re- re- uh, requirement to rely on those individuals uh, creates additional stress for our members. Uh, when they're trying to get their neighbors to and from, you know, medical appointments, family appointments, or, you know, going for groceries. So we want to see a a system that works as as well as possible, and that includes uh, relief for our folks, and they want people to stand beside as well. Are there many people or or, or union members that are on sick leave or are on long-term or away from their jobs? And and does does COVID still play a role as far as, as taking people out of the mix? So our numbers for uh, people on illness leave and uh, pre-retirement are fairly consistent uh, year over year. Um, COVID still can play a a factor in in that. I mean, uh, people getting sick. There are still people getting sick, and uh, the direction always is, well, don't go to work if you're sick. You don't want to infect the whole crew. Um, So, but I don't think, or I haven't noticed an uptick in illness you know, directly related to COVID right now, but there is certainly, uh, you know, a number of viruses or, or bacterial infections going around, and we have seen an increase uh, sort of in the general population. I would suggest that any increase in illness in the general population will be reflected in, in my membership and the traveling public. 
Right. Um, Do you still consider it a a good place to work as far as I know? Like you said, there's competition and there's perhaps other places that might offer more attractive compensation. But is it still as far as selling it as a a good place to work? Is that still something you do? It is, yeah. And uh, it's something that we, uh, as union members, you know, we we like the people we work with. We like where we work. Um, But sometimes, especially in in uh, times of un- sort of unprecedented inflation, uh, people start looking more closely at their paychecks because they're starting to wonder uh, if they can afford the bills that they currently have with the wages that they currently have. And so uh, we're looking to really address some of those issues around um, livable compensation and, and uh, you know, um, making it a, a career that people will stay at uh, through uh, wage reopeners this summer and then uh, following up in the following year in 25. And you mentioned kind of where people live as well. And I know we've talked about this in the past in that even, say, getting people uh, that are living on Salt Spring Island or living on some of the smaller communities that can be extremely expensive. How do you even deal with a challenge like that where the cost of housing uh, just keeps going up? Yeah, uh, no question. Housing is a challenge. It's a challenge on uh, smaller, more remote locations, finding availability of housing uh, and uh, both at uh, large urban areas as well as the more rural areas, there's also a challenge in affordability. So that, that's a real issue. Uh, we are we have engaged with BC Ferries on different ways to potentially uh, you know, remove some of those stressors and that includes uh, things like uh, northern, northern uh, differentials for people working in remote areas, uh, looking at travel costs because the, those can be a barrier to employment more rural or remote locations if there isn't enough uh, available workforce and there's just transitory workers. And uh, and then looking at, you know, how do you make uh, a job that is uh, serves the public uh, and the public doesn't want to bear a lot of cost on, uh, how do you make it so that you can also still pay the workers a reasonable rate? And uh, we've also been looking at the way BC Ferries is structured internally and whether or not... Uh, the, the right amount of funds are being directed towards the operational workforce. So the, you know, the, the refit crews, the ships crews, the terminals crews, um, you know, being a priority for a ferry operation um, as opposed to just a, a volume of managers, perhaps. Well, Eric, I appreciate you coming on the show and bringing us up to date as far as what's happening and plans that are underway as far as fixing this problem, hopefully dealing with some of those vacancies. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the interest. Have a good day. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, we are talking about traffic calming measures. And if you spend any time driving around the city of Vancouver, you may have noticed there are some new types of barriers. They have been installed at 37 locations in the city, and they've now been nicknamed the banana barriers because, well, they are a bright banana yellow, and they're kind of banana-shaped, I suppose you could say. Well, I tweeted out a picture of one and the reason I tweeted it out was because there was a vehicle sitting on top of it not where the vehicle was supposed to be and my goodness did that get a conversation going well joining us now to talk more about this is Sandy James a city planner as well as the director of Walk Metro Vancouver Sandy thank you so much for taking some time with us today always a delight Jill 
Well, I did not realize that this was going to be such a contentious issue, but uh, certainly there are no shortages of opinions on this. I'm curious your thoughts on the use of these types of barriers when it comes to traffic calming and trying to slow streets down. Well, you know, I have to say, Jill, that you may want to leave your job and set yourself up as a communication and media expert (laughs) because your one tweet, which shows a picture of the um, small gravity barriers, concrete barriers, which are painted yellow, shows an SUV sitting on top of it. And you have had over 6.7 million impressions on Twitter, 1,500 likes, 3,000 forwarded, and over 4,800 comments. So I think you can truly say that your issue regarding the banana barriers has gone wild. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a little bit nuts, that's for sure. And the reason I put it out there wasn't because I'm anti-slow street or anti-calming measures. I think they're great. I think that, that, that we should make the streets safe for everybody. I, I drive, but I also ride my bike. I'm a pedestrian. I take transit. I have an electric scooter. I, I love that the streets are accessible for everybody. But as I pointed out in that, that post as well, that was the second incident. I also saw uh, a rear ender. Yes, the drivers clearly weren't paying attention, but there was also some confusion over who had the right of way and what to do with those barriers. Uh, I'm curious, is, is it a, a growing curve that people need to, to get used to these things, or what is the actual purpose of them? You know, Jill, you never give away your position when you are um, a fan favorite on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> I think you have brought forward a really exciting conversation about the changes we're going to be seeing in cities and in places where people live in, the next, in this century and certainly in the next 30 to 40 years. And I I think um, if you remember during the pandemic, we had the introduction of slow streets and they were specifically put out because people didn't have places to congregate. You couldn't go to gyms. And the whole thing during the pandemic was to allow people to have places to walk and bike with less car traffic. But as um, as this went through and that first slow street traffic calming came in two years ago, There was a report that uh, put forward to council, and you can find it by Googling City of Vancouver Slow Streets. It was put forward last fall, taking a look at how how these streets have functioned and whether um, people were happy with them. And in fact, um, in a survey that received nearly 2,000 responses, over 70% really liked the initiative. And the whole point of the initiative was to allow on streets that are not arterials a much more equitable way that you could take um, a family can go biking, you can take the dog out for a walk and use the street differently. So what it really does is establish a priority of vehicles going 50 kilometers an hour on the arterial or major streets and allows the streets designated as slow streets, slow streets in neighborhoods to have a slower 30 kilometer um, speed limit. Now, now, the difference between 50K and 30K is really about survivability. If you as a pedestrian or cyclist are hit at 50 kilometers an hour, you only have a 20% survival rate. If you're hit at 30 kilometers, it's a 90% survival rate. And also it gives the, um, the driver more time to assess the situation. So the whole point of bringing in these pylons was just the banana barriers are there to narrow down the entrance to these so-called slow, slow streets, the slow street network, so that you would have a visual cue. 
about why that is happening. Which makes a lot of sense, but it's not what I'm seeing happening on on that street especially, because where those banana barriers are, uh, they're at 14th and Camby. I know they're in other locations. The picture I took was at 14th and Camby, and it stops people there uh, because you have to navigate. It goes down to one lane, but it doesn't stop people from speeding on the rest of that street. Once you're through them, people speed down that street all the time. Now, if you cross Camby Street to 14th Avenue on the other side, there's a church and there's a school and there are speed bumps all along 14th. Those seem right. to slow people down. So why has the city gone to this banana barrier use to slow people down rather than, say, using speed bumps? Well, this is also, you know, I have to say the City of Vancouver Engineering Department is is very good at um, looking at what options they can use. And these, again, are temporary measures. There will be other things that will come in over time. But at this point, they had to have a way to designate that this was a 30-kilometer area. Now, almost four years ago, the British Columbia uh, Union of Municipalities asked the province, the NDP province, to allow cities to designate 30-kilometer areas. And the province has just ignored that request. And because of that, the cities have to go themselves to try to create these barriers to show the change of the 30-kilometer-an-hour areas. Now, you are right that um, some, some areas will look faster than others for drivers, but the whole point is to provide the driver the idea that they are now getting off a 50-kilometer arterial road and they need to behave differently and more appropriately. But I think the second thing that you were kind of hinting at is that there is a real change in what people are driving. And I noticed the vehicles that we are seeing up on these pylons, these gravity barriers, are actually all SUVs. And SUVs ride high above the road to give drivers good visibility, but they're also responsible for 60% um, of new purchases and a 46% increase in pedestrian deaths. And the reason for that is they have a really high grill, and that grill is so high that on some of them, like the Cadillac, Cadillac Escalade, you can't see 15 feet in front of you. And they are now children being killed in the U.S. We have the figures on um, what is called a front over because the person can't see in front. And you are probably finding that with these vehicles that are, are, are so high. They're going fast and there is not a way for the person to see around the front um, windshield pillars that are on each side or in the front. And they are not going slow enough to see what is happening. Right, which, which to me points at, at a bigger issue, which is that people are driving in a way that's dangerous. And I guess that goes back to, to why I posted and, and why I was putting it out there is, and again, I think that driver, I don't think that driver was going down the street and launched onto the barricade. I think somehow that driver reversed onto the barricade because if you look at the damage on it, the damage is, is at the front, not where he would have launched if he was going down the street. I don't know. I didn't see it happen. I only I only saw the aftermath. But I guess the, the question for me is, are these these barricades and I get what you're saying that they're supposed to signal to drivers you are now on a slow street. I mean, the, the speed posted on that street is 30 kilometers, but it's it's clearly not working because we're still seeing drivers speed out when they're not right at those barriers. So is the question these these are to physically stop people who are speeding or are they meant to stop people from speeding? 
Well, the vehicles are, sorry, the barriers are actually there to indicate that there's a change in speed. And there's always a learning curve. Cars and bikes are like gravity and water. They will flow. And so they will always try out new things. But I think what you are seeing here are people that are already going, drivers that are going too fast to recognize the conditions. And it also may be part of people using autonomous driving as well that are not recognizing the barriers. But in all cases, when you see something like this, you know that speed is involved. Speed and not not looking around the vehicle to see what is going on. And certainly in some of these um, higher profile SUVs, they, they rely on front, back and side cameras to see what is going on. So I think that I think there's always a learning curve whenever you introduce something new. But I have to also say that um, going to a more equitable use of street and making it accessible for everyone it is really this this decade's work. This is going to be the change that we're going to be seeing on our city streets of having a network where people can walk and bike. And if you're in a wheelchair or with strollers, roll and have uh, a slower speeds on those streets. All right. Well, it's uh, an interesting one for sure uh, and uh, one that has sparked uh, a lot of discussion. Sandy, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Always a pleasure. Let me know when you do your next tweet like this. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. <laughs> that is have a good day. about two-thirds of people with disabilities have encountered barriers when it comes to being on trains or planes. This uh, taking a look at 2019 and 2020. It highlights a lack of consultation and enforcements by the agencies involved. Those are just some of the findings in a new report that was put out by the Federal Auditor General. Karen Hogan says in the report that Via Rail and the Canadian Air Transport Security Authority have made accessibility improvements over the last years, but there are still some very serious gaps. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Maya Enziv, a disability advocate, also the CEO of the accessibility app Access Now. Maya, great to to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Joe. Uh, Are you surprised at all by the findings that there are a lot of Canadians with disabilities that are facing these barriers when traveling? Absolutely not. Uh, It just confirms everything that I, as a person with a disability, have experienced and many, many others who've either shared with me personal testimonials or, you know, unfortunately, the nightmare stories we've been reading about in the news. And people will likely remember your name and heard you. You were on this show a few months ago talking about what happened when you flew and your wheelchair was damaged to the point that it was not operational when you got to your destination where you were going to a conference. We got so many calls as well, people reaching out saying that they had had similar things happen to them. We know that there aren't any actual statistics that are kept on this. Do you think that this will help change that? I hope that it does. I think that what we're seeing right now is that there is a movement growing concerning people with disabilities and the barriers that we are facing in travel. And particularly, you know, the, the air travel industry is not, is not ramping up enough measures to actually protect customers or passengers with disabilities. So whether it is, you know, that you're traveling with a mobility device that your concern might arrive at your destination damaged or lost, uh, or even if you're just facing, you know, 
really um, rude or disruptive uh, staff when you're at the airport. I mean, on my most recent trip to Austin, Texas, I had another incident where a flight attendant would absolutely just not speak to me uh, when it comes to storing my mobility device uh, in, a, in a cabin closet. And I'd done so much research. I started traveling with a completely different wheelchair. And the tone at which I was met with was extremely argumentative and just lacked empathy. I mean, I, I had expressed to her that I was terrified that there had been incidences in the past where, where Air Canada had broken my wheelchair and that I was nervous. Uh, she told me, if we break it, we'll buy you a new one. Hmm. And that was the kind of tone I was met with. And in that scenario, too, so, so you took the, the steps that, that to make sure that you had figured out that for a way that you would be able to fly to, to stop what had happened to you before, uh, to stop that from happening again. Uh, so sorry, so when, and when you got to the airport, so you got there and, and you were told that that wasn't the way it was going to be? Yeah, I was I was met with extreme resistance, very um, argumentative and, and angry flight attendants who did not want to speak to me or 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 even listen to my case. I, you know, I've done some research in which I learned that certain wheelchairs, uh, collapsible or foldable ones, could take priority in cabin closets when traveling to and from the U.S. So I came ready to do that. You know, I'm using a different wheelchair. It's not comfortable for me. It causes me pain. But I tried to do everything I could just to make it to my destination and reduce some of the risk. I shouldn't have to do that at all. But I went through, you know, additional measures every time I travel, I do. And to be met with just resistance and anger, she said, well, I'm not going to fight about it. I'm not, I'm not here to fight. I'm here to protect my mobility. And I just find that there's a, a, a sincere lack of compassion or empathy, and we don't really see proper training. So the types of barriers that Canadians with disabilities are facing in, in transportation, it, it, it's across the board. In travel, it's, it's, a, it's a lack of understanding. It's really bad customer service, you know, not to mention the type of, of really um, significant damage done when someone is removed from their custom mobility device or it's damaged or lost. I mean, the, it's a laundry list of issues. So I hope what this does, this recent report, is just kind of highlight how, how huge of an issue this is. I mean, you know, when we're talking about one in five people living with a disability, this is not an anomaly or a one-off incident that's happening. We're seeing a pattern of behavior now that must be addressed. The AG report as well, and there are a lot of shocking numbers in it. Another one that stuck out to me is, and she wrote, that part of the problem is that there are only four Canadian transportation agency employees who are responsible for keeping track of and for enforcing more than 450 accessibility rules for more than 130 transportation service providers. I mean, there's no way that four people could possibly keep track and enforce those rules. And that, and she writes that as a result, that is why we're seeing some of these barriers remain. What are your thoughts about those numbers? Yeah, we, we're not equipped in any way to protect passengers with disabilities when it comes to the regulatory bodies in place that are there to protect us. They're understaffed, under-resourced, 
And a lot of people, you know, with disabilities who are facing challenges or barriers in travel, they're not even reporting them because currently the onus is on the individual. And that's a completely backwards system where right now everything is set up to protect a multi-billion dollar corporation like an airline instead of protecting an individual who might have had their mobility or independence robbed from them. You know, we do need to see government step in and take this seriously and to do so immediately. This is not something that should continue because the more that we leave this kind of as is, the more incidences, the more horror stories. And the resolution is not for people with disabilities not to travel, which I've heard people say, well, maybe you just shouldn't travel. I mean, we live in Canada where every person's rights should be protected and valued, and we don't yet have that for people with disabilities. It also found as well, or her report also found that uh, looking at, at agencies such as Via Rail, CATSA, that they do take complaints, that, that you can obviously make a complaint about accessibility, but they're all dealt with on a one-off basis. Uh, there's not a broad mm-hmm. look. There's not something that, that, that covers them all. It's all a one-off. That, that seems like a, a very fragmented system as well. Absolutely. It's systemic. I mean, you know, if you're looking at an issue that affects end-to-end an experience for a passenger or a customer, you know, realizing that this is an ongoing issue and taking the seriousness that it needs to be resolved, you know, we've seen organizations, we've seen people kind of, you know, get behind sustainability movements, recognize that climate change is something that all companies need to respond to. We don't yet see that same seriousness when it comes to accessibility. And yet so many people are impacted by this negligence. I mean, the nice thing to see is that although there are still barriers with VRail, they have shown that they are making at least an effort to address it. You know, they are, they are coming up with a new fleet of trains that are more accessible, They've been retrofitting many of the stations. I know at Ottawa Station, it's a completely new experience if you're using a wheelchair. And I actually shared some of that on my own social media. And so we are seeing some changes, some progress, but just not enough and not widespread enough to make to make these barriers really go away completely. All right. Well, Mayan, thank you once again for joining us and for talking more about this. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Jill.